and I left uh, like all the way from January up through Easter with a couple of guest visit from visits from previous senior pastors in order to cover our statement of faith. I mean, it was over eight, eight different Sundays, and I thought, piece of cake, this won't be hard. And then as I was finishing, or really starting my sermon uh, earlier this week, uh, it hit me that just this week, I need to talk about the last days, the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state, all in 40 minutes. How would you like to be me right now? It's a really tall order. I mean, just, just one of those topics you could do an entire series on. In fact, I thought about this week. I thought, you know, I really do want to do a series on heaven at some point. Somebody asked me about that. They asked me this question about heaven. I thought, I should just do an entire series some point on heaven. And so someday I will. But for today, because we're trying to keep on track for heading up to Good Friday and, and Palm Sunday and Easter, I, I need to try to cover those four things, the last days the uh, return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state, and just kind of give us all an overview. So uh, hopefully we can get all that done in the 38 minutes, for those of you who are watching the clock, that we have left right now. You know, it's funny, yeah, you see, I see that, Bob. You notice that I, I have a countdown clock. Some of you know this, some of you don't. I, I, you know, at my last church, they didn't do this to me, but this church, they got this clock in the back there, and I didn't know up until like two weeks ago when I was chatting with somebody here in the congregation, and they said, yeah, I, I look at that clock all the time. I said, you know about that clock? I said, how do you know about that clock? And they said, Jamie, everybody knows about that clock. Who are you kidding me? We, and so now whenever I see some of you, as I just did Bob, glancing back, I know what you're doing. And uh, just know I'm kind of watching it too. And when it turns like zero, then I get a yellow light and I get a red light and it's really obnoxious. But uh, we'll try to get her done. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for what you have given us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, today as we're going to look to the future and what you have said about the future, I pray, God that you might help us understand what is to come, and Lord, even more importantly, help us to prepare in our hearts and our minds, even in our church, for what is to come. Uh, God, we've got some weighty theology to work through right now, so I pray that you'd uh, help us to be sharp, help us to be attuned uh, to what you say, so that, Lord, we might leave here today at the very least more inspired, at the very most even more filled up, knowledge-wise, with uh, the truth that you want us to have. So we dedicate our lives to you once again right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one thing that the last 100 years in America has not been void on is an interest in the end of the world. I mean, you'd have to have your head in the sand to have missed it. Our Western culture, I don't mean like the Western part of the United States, but the Western part of the world has just been extremely interested in the end of the world. World War I was jolting, to say the least. And then there was World War II with the threat of Nazi fascism. And then, as some of you have lived through, and even I partially lived through, we went into the era of the Cold War, complete with the nuclear threat. In fact, I didn't know this till my study this week, but the doomsday clock, uh, which was invented in 1947 to predict how close we are to nuclear midnight, still exists and is used by many scientists. 
and it's changed 22 times since 1947. The furthest it's been away to midnight was in the fall of communism, I think in 1991, but yet the closest it's been was back during the height of the Cold War. It was two minutes to midnight. Right now it's five minutes to midnight because of all that's going on in North Korea. People are very concerned about what might end the world. And then you had the whole Y2K hysteria. Remember that? Our country spent over $300 billion. Let that sink in a minute. $300 billion in computer upgrades, generators, water systems, food storage, fuel storage, all in preparation for a potential global meltdown that obviously didn't happen. And then right after the, return, the turn of the millennium, no less than three blockbuster movies came out all talking about the end. You had Armageddon, Deep Impact, and Asteroids. And then if you were following culture, numerous novels have come out, both secular and Christian alike, that tell about possible end-time scenarios. Pat Robertson wrote a novel called The End of the Age. The whole Left Behind series came out, as well as a novel called Judgment Day 2000. Even secular magazines have all focused on the question of the end of the world as we know it. Time magazine more than once has had as its cover the words, the end of the world. As if this were not enough, one simply need to do a Google search to notice hundreds of thousands of sites really millions of sites that have to do with end times issues. Everything from nuclear threat to environmental catastrophes to all the strife in the Middle East, especially concerning Israel, and how all of this or any of this could be an indicator that the end is upon us. We have TV preachers today that devote 100% of their airtime to talking about the end. And then there's that infamous friend that every one of us has. You know the person who seems to be obsessed with end times issues. But we all have someone like that in our lives. It might be a coworker, a friend, a family member. You might even be married to him. But the reality is, is that all of us have somebody in our life that whenever our Bible study says, what book should we study, they say, Daniel, or Revelation, or one of the end times books. Uh, truly, folks, we live in an age, it's unmistakable, where talk about what is to come, and I mean cosmically and eternally what is to come, has become the talk of the town. It's really become the talk of our country. And the question that I want you and I to wrestle with today is that with all of this talk, what is fact and what is fiction? I mean, what does the Bible, because that's what we're concerned about, right? What does the Bible say about the future? What does the Bible say about the end? And yet, in light of all the other things that we hear about today, all the novels, all the articles, all the things that are going on in culture today, what's the Bible tell us? Is the end of the world near? If so, how can we know it? What should you and I be doing? In response, as we've seen just a few minutes ago, our statement of faith here at Scottsdale Bible Church, declares some bold things based on the Bible about what is to come. And it's a good thing to wrestle with, this idea of the end. And so I want us to make sense of this today. And so here is our starting point. It's something that the New Testament makes crystal clear, and it's point number one on your outline, and that is that you and I are currently living in the last days. Did you know that? If you did, I'm going to Re help you re-educate you here today about what the last days are. But if you didn't, this might be news to you. The Bible says 
that we are living in the last days. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to the second book of Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, or you can look up here on the screen. And notice how this passage begins in verse 1. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulties. Understand this. In other words, the Bible's saying here, tune in. Make sure that you get what is just about ready to be taught here. It's something you need to understand. And then it goes on to say a couple of significant things. First, it mentions something called the last days. And then it tells us that these last days will be difficult or perilous or grievous, as some other translations cite. That little phrase, last days, I want you to focus on that right now, is a critical and key phrase in trying to understand what the New Testament says about the end times. It's used only five times in all of the New Testament in its plural form, and yet in each instance, it's very revealing and clear about what God wants us to know about these last days. And from the very few but powerful passages referencing these last days, of which one of the main ones is found right here in 2 Timothy 3.1, we can deduce a couple of things about them. First, we can deduce that the last days, whatever they are, are upon us right now, that they began with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's true. And so look at what one of the other of the five usage, usages of this phrase, last days, in the Bible says. This time look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and you'll see what I mean. Look up here on the screen. It says, but in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So catch what it's saying here, folks. With the coming of Jesus Christ about 2,000 years ago, in God's overall cosmic eternal plan for the universe, he has labeled these days the last days. And so think about all the other epics of history that we see in the Bible. At the time of creation, the time of the flood, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the uh, Mosaic covenant. Uh, the time of David and the kings, and then the time of the, the, the post-kings, prophets' time. I mean, think of all the different epics that you know about in the Bible. Uh, theologians argue about how long that period is. Some say it's 6,000 years long. Some say it's longer. But the reality is, is that it was a long time. And what God says is that when Jesus showed up on the scene some 2,000 years ago, he labeled the first coming of Christ the last days. And those are the days that you and I are living in right now. And though we do not know how long they will last, though the Scripture does tell us they will be short in comparison to what has come before, 1 Corinthians 7.29, and 1 John 2.18 tells us that we're in the last hour. And though there is some debate as to what is to follow, we do know that from a bird's-eye view of things, we are living in the last days on this earth as we know it, and we have now for almost 2,000 years. But truly, it's an important thing for you to know how the scriptures tell us to view the world around us. We are in the last days. 
And you see, the reason that this is important, folks, is that the sad reality today is that most evangelical Christians in North America really never talk about these days as the last days, and they certainly don't live like we might be in the last leg of history as we know it. As we're going to see in just a little bit here when we wrap up, when Paul challenges Timothy, by extension us, to what we need to do in these last days, I find that many Christians struggle to keep up with what God wants for them intellectually, emotionally, and behaviorally when it comes to living set apart in these last days. So this idea of these being the last days is a grounding mechanism for you and I when it comes to how we need to live today. It's that important. So the first thing we need to burn into our intellectual and spiritual hard drive this morning as we consider what is true and not true about the future is that we need to label these the last days. It might be five minutes to midnight for nuclear chaos, but God says it's in the last hour for you and I here on planet Earth when it comes to our perspective as followers of his son Jesus. Now, as you're chewing on this, notice a further thing that 2 Timothy 3.1 tells us, and that is that these last days will be difficult and increasingly evil times. This is very important for our view of the end as well. It says there in verse 1 that these last days will be times of difficulty, or as the New International Version of the Bible translates it, terrible times. That word in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in carries with it the idea of reducing strength, dangerous and difficult times full of struggle. And just so we don't think that this is some phase that the world will go through and then just get better, look at how Paul elaborates even further on this in verse 13. He says, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Do you see that there? From bad to worse. So these last days will be about increasing evil, getting worse and not better. Folks, listen to me. I thought about this week in my office when I was studying. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom at this point. I'm really not. And I don't know what your particular worldview is, but one of the primary teachings of the Bible is that the world as we know it is not to be our home as followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason that this world is not to be our home is because it has rebelled against God, it's gone its own way, and though he has penetrated it with his love and grace as shown in Jesus Christ, he still says that we are in enemy territory and this will never be heaven, this side of heaven. And so it would be like attempting to climb Mount Everest. You could convince yourself all you want that climbing Mount Everest is a glorious, wonderful, challenge-filled adventure, and yet most people who do it will tell you it was perilous, terrifying, terrifying, freezing, and a life-threatening endeavor. And you see, many Christians today want to be kind of Pollyanna about the world that we live in, Pollyanna about the life that you have now, when the reality is God says you're living in difficult times as a follower of Jesus in this foreign place. And so we can surround ourselves all we want today with the comforts of technology, with the advances of science that make our lives healthier and easier, 
with Christian schools to shelter our kids from academic abuse, with houses in the suburbs away from crime, with vacations that take our mind off the rat race. We can do all of this, and none of this is bad, but the reality is we're still living in what the Bible calls the last days, and they are difficult times compared to what God wants for us that's going to be true about us in the next world at the end of time. In fact, if you're still not convinced, look at how verses 2 to 3 go on to describe these last days that we're living in right now. And as I read verses 2, to four, two 3, and 4 for you right now, I simply want you to ask this question. Do these, this description at all sound like the world that you and I live in today? It's not flowery stuff, but just be honest with yourself and ask yourself, could this be describing in any way, shape, or form the world that we experience today. It says in verse 2, for people will be lovers of self. Pause right there. We label the 70s, the me generation, people who worship the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. So the reality is, I think many of us realize that you and I have lived through a day and age in which we've experienced a whole love of self movement. They will be lovers of money. Need I say anything about that? They will be proud and arrogant. You know, it's funny. Uh, most of the world sees America as proud and arrogant. We're the only ones who don't see ourselves that way. They will be abusive. You ever watched an action movie lately? We, we have glorified violence. We have glorified murder. We have glorified things like that. I mean, it, it's an abusive culture. People will be disobedient to their parents. Did you know that in half the states in the United States, you can divorce your parents at age 16? You can. Uh, people will be, uh, where am I here? Just mean ungrateful, unholy. Uh, that word unholy literally means that they are not willing to set themselves apart wholly and completely for God's service. Move on to verse 3. They'll be heartless, uh, literally meaning without love. They will be unappeasable. That's an interesting word. That word means that they will not be able to be reconciled to another person when they have strife with them. You ever known somebody like that? Have you ever been like that yourself? They will be slanderous. That word literally means violent with one's mouth. They will be slanderous. They will be without self-control. Oh, I smiled when I read that one this week. I, I, I thought of all the addiction rate going on today, our sexually free society. I mean, without self-control. It goes on to say they'll be brutal, not loving good. Then move into verse 4, treacherous. That word literally means manipulative. Known anybody like that? Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then I don't have verse 5 up here, but it says having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So people walking around looking all good on the outside but being powerless over even their own issues on the inside. Again, I know that this could describe the vast majority of cultures over the last 2,000 years, but folks, that's the point. That what the Bible's trying to do here is to say to every culture living in these last days, they're difficult times. And everything that we see and experience in this culture needs to remind us as followers of Jesus that this world's not our home, that it's never going to be heaven on earth, and that we need to continue to keep our sights as we're going to see focused on Christ. 
And the point is, and this is the reason as well the Bible tells us, is that these last days are eventually going to lead to the end of days. It really is. That the reason that last days theology is so important is because right on the coattails of the last days is what the Bible declares is the end of days. Eventually, as things go from bad to worse, the Bible says God will initiate at some point his final redemptive plan for this world, and it will involve no less than three major events. Again, this is a broad sweep, but three major events. Look up here on the screen. The first one will be the return of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into all the nuances of Christ's return this morning, things like the tribulation, the seven years, the Antichrist, the rapture, the role of Israel. I believe in all of that stuff. I preached a lot about it when I did the book of Daniel, so you can get the CD specifically on Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 9, and I'm sure I'll be preaching about it again in the future. But it's beyond the scope of our statement of faith. It's beyond the scope of even this series. But what I do want to make clear about the return of Christ, now don't miss this, is what our statement of faith does say, and that is that the return of Jesus Christ will be personal, visible, and imminent. Those are three words you always want to hang on to when you think about the return of Jesus Christ. Personal, visible, and imminent. In other words, Jesus will return with power and might, visibly and in the clouds, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, in the same way that he was ascended into heaven is the same way that he will come, it tells us this in Acts chapter 1. And so unlike some popular conceptions today, he's not going to come back as a baby like the first time in some obscure village in Palestine. No, the Bible says that he will come in a triumphant and victorious fashion and everyone will know it. You won't read about it in the papers. You won't be wondering, is this really the dude? You will know it because it will be obvious to all. That's what we mean by personal, visible, when Jesus comes back. Some of you are saying, is that really true? Yeah, look at Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, verse 30. He himself declared this. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I think it's pretty clear that when Jesus comes again, it's going to be visible, personal, in power, and everyone will know it. And imminent simply means that it could happen at any time. Again, as things go from bad to worse, it could happen at any time, his return. And as we're going to see in a second, we need to be ready. And when Jesus does return, make no mistake, folks, everything will change. I mean, it'll be a whole different deal for planet Earth. The Old Testament prophets, some of you know this, called it the great and terrible day of the Lord. Interesting description. Great and terrible day of the Lord. Great for those of us who know him and follow him and are ready. Not so great for those that don't know him and have rejected him and are not ready. In fact, what the Bible says will happen right after Jesus' return is that he will set up his kingdom here on earth and will reign, again, visibly and personally for 1,000 years here on earth. We call it the millennial reign or kingdom of Christ. 
And though we need to be fair, not all Bible-believing Christians interpret the Scriptures as teaching that Christ will literally reign on this earth for a thousand years. It seems pretty clear to me, however, that this is indeed what the Bible teaches. And so I want you to be the judge. I want you to look up here on the screen, and I want you to follow along as I read for you Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 5. And again, you be the judge. It's talking about the return of Jesus Christ here. The Apostle John is having visions from God about what is to come. And in Revelation 20, this is what he says. He says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, or had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now here it is. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, I know that for some Christians, and certainly for many, many seekers, this idea of a 1,000-year reign of Christ almost seems unbelievable, rather like science fiction, and really kind of surreal. I get that. And so this causes some Christians to interpret this text that you and I just looked at in a symbolic or allegorical way. They simply say it's talking about a spiritual reign of Christ in the heavenly places that's going on now that he's resurrected and ruling through his church. And yet for those of us who take this as more of a literal thing happening in the future, the question that we're asked is why? But why would Jesus reign for a thousand years here on earth before he ushers in the eternal state? Why would we take this passage literally? And it's a good question. And as we've been doing so far in this series, I'm going to allow Dr. Wayne Grudem to answer it for us. As many of you know, I interviewed Dr. Wayne Grudem, who holds a Ph.D. from Cambridge University. He's written a world-class systematic theology. And I interviewed him concerning our statement of faith before this series. And at one point, I asked him, what does it mean when our statement of faith says we believe in a premillennial return of Jesus Christ, meaning he will come before he sets up his millennial kingdom here on earth? And I thought his answer was very thought-provoking, to say the least, and I thought it was very helpful in giving you and I some of the logic as to why a literal reign of Jesus on this earth is going to happen. And so look up here on the screen, and let's listen to what Wayne tells us. In our statement of faith, Dr. Rudin, we talk about the fact that we are a pre-millennial church. We, we have a pre-millennial understanding of the end times. What does that mean? What is pre-millennialism, and why is that important as far as the scriptures go? Well, the word millennium just means a thousand years. Okay. And it's used to talk about a future thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth before the final judgment okay. and before all evil is removed from the world. And so uh, I think that's exciting. It comes largely from Revelation 20, as you will teach, but um, it, uh, it's also affirmed by a number of pa other passages in the Old and New Testament. Um, I think it's important, uh, although I realize that not all evangelical Christians agree that there will be this future thousand-year reign of Christ. We do affirm that here at Scottsdale Bible Church, and uh, I think it's important. Um, it reassures us that we are going to see a day when Jesus is 
king over all the earth. Yeah. And in the midst of all our struggles over politics and laws and governments, and especially governments that persecute the church in other countries, um, we can have assurance that Jesus is going to come back and show what genuine godly government should look like. And I think it will be a demonstration to the whole world forever that God's teachings and principles about government and business and education and other social structures uh, bring great good to the human race uh, for the glory of God because it'll be Jesus reigning over both sinful, unredeemed people and redeemed people and showing that uh, he can reign as a perfectly just king. This is good. I want to ask a follow-up question because I think this is really important for our people to understand. You're, you're saying that one of the outpourings of the whole idea of the millennial kingdom is that Jesus Christ will be on this earth reigning, making righteous, judicious decisions yes. that affect believer and unbeliever alike. Could it, would it be too far of a stretch then to say that part of the practical application of that is that Christians now should be a part of making wise, judicious, righteous decisions that even affect the societal, political realm? Yes, absolutely. Because that's what the millennium will be, and it would not be too early to start now. And it's demonstrating God's wisdom in practical life. Yeah. Yeah. The wisdom of his teaching, the wisdom of his commandments, how they work out in everyday life and in um, application to government as well. Because there are some Christians, even some pastors, that teach we shouldn't be involved in politics. There's religion, there's politics, let's just keep the two separate. You're making an argument based upon a th profound theological truism about the millennium of saying, no, I think we need to be involved in the societal realm because someday Jesus is going to be physically on this earth. Yes, and just as Jesus' reign on earth will demonstrate the excellence of God's principles for government and moral commands, so uh, now, uh, oh, and just as in ancient Israel, the excellence of God's moral standards for the nation of Israel were intended as a testimony to the nations that they would say, what nation is this? What kind of God is this that gives such wonderful and wise laws for his nation? So I think also today as Christians seek to influence government for good, not to compel, but to persuade in the open process of democracy, uh, that we should be uh, realizing that when we have uh, success in getting right principles uh, established in laws or in court decisions, that these are in a way a, a, a faint reflection of how God's principles and teachings are good for everyone. They're wise, they're just. Now, now that is an interesting, if not profound, thing that Wayne is latching on to. Why a millennial kingdom, a 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth? Two things. I don't know if you caught that he said. One is to bring and demonstrate God's justice to the whole world after years of sin and injustice. And so God wants to rule on this earth even before bringing the eternal state in to show what he's been trying to say in his word or what he has been saying in his word for thousands of years now to show us what justice and grace and his reign is about. But then secondly, to even compel you and I now just in anticipation of a millennial kingdom to strive for righteousness and justice in our lives, even in vying for that in the public arena, which many Christians seem shy to do. And I think Wayne is onto something there. Why a millennial kingdom? Because it will allow God to reign 
in a world that he originally created good, in a world that he originally designed for his reign. You can read about that in Genesis 1 and 2. And then also, for you and I now to live right and to live as the kind of Christians, I like how Wayne said it, not to compel or coerce, but to persuade those around us to get on board with God's goodness and his justice in our lives. And then after the millennial reign of Jesus, only then will come the final judgment and what theologians label the eternal state. Uh, Revelation 20 talks about the fact that there will be a judgment of all humankind. It's called the great, great White Throne. And for those whose names are written in the book of life based on their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity with God. And for those who have refused to come to Christ, they will not spend eternity with God, but eternity apart from him. And as I said earlier, though I feel like I need to do an entire series of messages someday on heaven and hell, and I will, let me simply read for you right now, in a very positive vein, what the eternal state is going to be like for those who embrace God in Jesus Christ. You're going to like this. Look up here on the screen. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, talking about heaven. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You know, people ask me all the time, what is heaven going to be like? I mean, it just blows me away. Many Christians tend to think it's going to be boring. I actually had somebody ask me about that again this week. They said, that just sounds kind of boring, sitting before the throne with hands raised, singing holy, holy, holy. And I think, boy, stop right there. Like, don't be saying that. But, but that's how many people think heaven is going to be kind of boring. And though the Bible doesn't tell us a ton about all the things that we will do in heaven, it does say, and you need to latch on to this, folks, is that in heaven it will make your best day here look like a dump. It will make your best day here pale in comparison to being face-to-face with your Maker and your Redeemer. So I've joked for years, nobody's going to be whining about the music in heaven. Do we all understand that? No one's going to say, I don't like that song. What's the next song? There's not going to be some little group of people in heaven kind of huddled together saying, what, this is it? What a drag. Like, no one's going to be doing that. The idea is that everybody in heaven, when you're face to face with Christ, is out of pain, out of mourning, there's no more tears, you're in complete full presence of God with peace and joy for all of eternity. Again, I don't know what the details are, but I think of my best day here when I'm finally in that sweet spot and centered, God says that's what heaven's going to be like 24-7 all the time. And so to recap, look up here on the screen. We are living in the last days. We don't know how long they will be, but they're the last days. And Christians need to know this. The signs of the times are all around us. And as the progression follows, it's going to go from bad to worse, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ. He will then set up his millennial kingdom, and then the end will come with the eternal state. Folks, this is God's unstoppable plan. 
And as I said earlier, we don't know when it will happen. As Jesus taught, no one knows the day and the hour, though we can read the signs of the times and be ready. And whether God will incorporate asteroids, nuclear weapons, environmental decay, or any other doomsday scenario, the scriptures do not make clear. So I've been saying for years to some people who conjecture on all that stuff, I don't know. Maybe he will, but we don't know, so get off it and get on with what the Bible does say will happen. Stop trying to figure it all out, because if you're with me here, he's given us enough to latch on to already. We didn't even get into the tribulation, the rapture, the seven years, the antichrist. I mean, there's a lot of other things that the scriptures tell us about some of the details about the end of times. But why go all wacko on asteroids and nuclear threats? I mean, the reality is we don't know if God will incorporate any of that or not. He doesn't tell us in his word. So maybe we need to focus on the things that he does tell us. And then there's one last final thing that the Bible does tell us. And it's really the note that I want to end on today. And and it's how to live well in these last days. How to live well. It's clearly, now don't miss this, folks, the point of 2 Timothy chapter 3. That as Paul says we're in the last days, described the last days, look at what he says next in verses 10 through 12 and then verses 14 to 17. We're going to read this, make two observations, then we're done. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Then go to verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped, for every good work. So what are you and I to do in response to all of this? One of two things that fits every one of us here this morning. And that is that we either need to continue to live a focused and godly life, or if you're not doing that, then begin to live a focused and godly life. That's what the scriptures call us to do. Uh, continue to live a focus in God's life. Verse 14 couldn't be more clear. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. It's like the Bible is telling you and me right here. These are the last days and they're not going to be pretty. So how should you live your life right now? Continue to live a focused and godly life as you've been living hopefully for the last 15, 20, 30, 40 years since you got saved. If you've been following Christ, then stay the course. Don't change a thing simply because you're feeling the heat of these last days. Simply know that the time might be near, so draw close to your Savior, love your wife, witness to your friends, stay involved in your church, use your gifts and passions for the kingdom, continue in what you have learned. That's what the Bible says to you and me, longing then for his return. And then for those of you who have not necessarily been living a focused and godly life, begin to do that. I think he hints to this in verse 15 when he says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Wise 
for salvation. And so many of you, or some of you here today, have either never come to faith in Jesus Christ, or if you have, you've just sort of been living your own self-centered kind of life. And what an intelligent discussion on the end times is supposed to do for you and me is to help us see what God has prepared for the future to cause us to say, boy, I better be living right right now. I better be living a focused and godly life now because someday he's going to return and someday he's going to set up his reign on this earth and someday I'm going to spend eternity with him. And so I might as well practice now what praying and reading his word and sharing my faith with others and serving and giving are all about trusting him through anything and everything. Maybe today is the day for you to get right with God for you to come to him even through faith in salvation to him today. So let me do this. Let me pray for us all as we wrap up here right now. Let's have every head bowed. And if you're ready to receive Christ here today or to recommit your life to him right now, we're going to do so. Father, we've been doing more of this in this series than probably, uh, well, any time since I've been here at Scottsdale Bible Church, this idea of asking ourselves to recommit to you and even to accept your son Jesus into our lives for the very first time. And the Lord, the reason is, is because we're taking a look at wonderful and good theology that has to do with salvation, the Trinity, faith. As we're seeing today, Lord, even what is to come. And Lord, there's a lot of people out there saying a lot of different things about the end, but we care most about what your word says. And Lord, as we've seen today, your word says, last days, the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, in the eternal state. And so I pray, God, that as we hopefully start to get our heads and our hearts around what you're going to do here today, that God, it would cause us more than anything to say, I want to be a follower of you through your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, for those of us who are doing that, we just will continue to do that. But maybe even today, longing more and more for your return. God, for those of us who have been living either a rather self-focused life, claiming to be followers of you, or, Lord, clearly have been more in seeker mode, having yet to embrace Jesus Christ, maybe today is the day we do so. And so, Lord, right where somebody sits right now, they, they say this. They say, oh, God, thank you for making me and loving me and calling me to yourself. I realize my sin separates you from me. I realize that my sin keeps me from knowing you eternally. And I realize that Jesus is the payment, the sacrifice given for my sin. And I accept him, I believe him, I follow him in my life right now. Lord, I pray that if somebody were to make that heart decision today, that they would know they have crossed over from death to life, from darkness into light, from having no hope to now having hope eternally. And God, I pray you'd give them that initial burst of assurance right now. God, for the rest of us, I pray that as we go out of here today, that we might go out in full assurance of faith, knowing that what you have said is going to happen and that we can keep our sights fixated on you for the rest of our lives. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, it does help us to understand what is to come and what our lives need to be about now. We love you and we worship you. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next week.